Welcome to Microdose Psychedelic Insights, powered by The Conscious Fund. This is the Sci-Fi series, discovering the cutting-edge science and research in psychedelic medicine. All right, welcome back, everybody. This is the Sci-Fi Podcast, where we talk to leading clinicians, researchers, scientists, and industry experts to unravel the mystery that is psychedelic science. And I'm here today with the psychedelic scientist himself, Manish Gurn. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, man. I appreciate you uh, being on our show today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Excited to chat. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for our audience, I'd love if you could just share a little bit about who you are and uh, you know what kind of drew you to the psychedelic space. For sure. Um, so I'll talk about like what I am right now. I'm a neuroscience PhD student over at McGill University. Um, I do a bunch of uh, different things, but one of the, my main projects right now is studying the so-called default mode network, which is a particular network in the brain that's involved in kind of abstract a- aspects of our thinking, you could say. And so I study that and I also study, do stuff related to psychedelics. Um, so I have a couple of collaborations with um, some leading researchers, including Robin Carhart Harris over at Imperial College London, also Chris Timmerman also at the Imperial College, um, kind of working with them on their data sets where they have brain data from LSD, psilocybin, and DMT. And I'm basically kind of working with that, trying to analyze it in new ways to understand what's going on. And um, so that's what I'm doing right now. And um, in terms of my path getting here, so, you know, I had a long-standing interest in psychedelics since I was a teenager. Um, I think it first started when I was like 16, 17, I got really, I got introduced to Zen Buddhism through a high school teacher. And then, you know, from there, I was interested in this concept of enlightenment, of meditation, of kind of changing how we perceive reality and all these things. And uh, one way or another, this took me to send books on psychedelics. And then I was like, you know, here are these compounds which are so stigmatized in our culture, which can catalyze these experiences where we transcend beyond our ego and sense this like unitive oneness with all the world and, you know, change how we perceive reality so radically. Um, and I was like, this is fascinating. And then so I ended up studying, you know, my undergrad was mainly in psychology, philosophy and neuroscience, a bit of computer science. And I was like, I want to study psychedelic drugs in the brain. And here I am. <laughs> wow, dude, what a journey. That's, that's really fascinating. There's so many interesting parallels because, you know, I'm a scientist as well. Uh, and so I think that's so cool. You're working with these leading researchers, these pioneers in the field, like Robin Carhart Harris. And I think it's even more fascinating the intersection of spirituality, meditation, and these other practices, and how they're really in alignment, you know, and and hand in hand. They go hand in hand with psychedelic drugs. Um, totally. That's a, a really really fascinating element to it. I love if you could speak a little bit about that and how they're. And I know like institutions like Harvard are doing a lot of research into meditation and things mm-hmm. like yoga and breathing. And there's some interesting parallels as to what happens in the brain, you know, uh, with psychedelic compounds and practices like meditation. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I think our audience would find it really interesting. Totally, totally. Yeah, it's super fascinating. And um, yeah, one way we could think about it is this concept of kind of um, lessening or reducing our attachment to our ego, to our sense of self, to our kind of stories that we tell ourselves about how the world is and who we are, you know, because like um, we go about our day, you know, we don't control what thoughts we have. They just come up in our head and we we have the decision or choice to take them seriously or not. And the default, you know, kind of way of being for people is like, oh, I had a thought and must be important. It must be real. It must point to something that's substantial. 
And um, something you realize with meditation and also psychedelics is that not really. These are just like things that are appearing in your experience. And, you know, they don't really uh, have any more importance than what you give them. And um, I think, uh, you know, if you meditate and you're, say, you're practicing mindfulness, the whole idea there is you're trying to allow your thoughts, feelings, emotions to come and go without um, getting caught up in them, uh, getting caught up in them kind of automatically. Uh, and it's like having a space where it's like, oh, I'm having this thought or feeling. I'm going to decide whether I act on that or whether I give it my attention. And, um, and I think that gives you the power to kind of step out of our concepts and, and our models of the world and like kind of see them um, from a looser perspective or more provisionally and kind of have a wider view on things. And then, you know, with psychedelics, what they do um, uh, is they kind of, um, kind of how I understand them and how some researchers are understanding them is they dissolve like our fundamental kind of structures of our experience. So like our, our beliefs around how the world is or who we are um, start to break down. And now all of a sudden, you know, you're having a lot of crazy experiences where your, your chair might be dissolving into something or, you know, your sense of being a particular type of person with this identity and history is kind of fading away. And you're just like, oh, what am I, what am I now? What's left? And, um, and through that, you start to see your own uh, personality, your own thoughts, your own uh, uh, tendencies and behaving as just something you're watching. You know, it's, it's, you cultivate that distance between you and it. And you find that with meditation and psychedelics. And on the brain level, we know that psychedelics and um, meditation both, uh, you know, act on the default mode network. Um, they act on a lot of other things as well. And I think it's very complex what happens um, in both these states. But one thing that both do, which is interesting, is they seem to reduce or kind of, um, you could say, disorganize or disintegrate activity in the default mode network. Um, and the default mode network, as I mentioned before a bit, is like a network... Um, you know, one way to broadly understand it is it's like it corresponds to anything that relies on memory. So if you're trying to remember the past, uh, imagine the future, that's a default mode network. If you're trying to, uh, you know, um, conceptually reason about something or reason about somebody else's beliefs, that's a default mode network. If you see something as um, being you uh, is corresponding to self or not self, that's a default mode network. And basically this becomes less activated or disorganized, meaning that the strength of our concepts and memories uh, is reduced and we have a more kind of open perspective on experience. And I think, you know, as I've said, like at a both psychological, cognitive and brain level, it seems to be happening with both these things. So That's so cool. I think that's really fascinating because the way you describe what happens or the functions of the default mode network, it seems like you're using it whenever you're doing something that's not being present in this moment, you know, exactly. if you're in the future or the past, you're identifying with yourself and your ego. And so it's so interesting that that's what gets dissolved through both meditation and, and yoga and then also psychedelics, you know, and a really mm -hmm. fascinating analogy I once heard is what psychedelics do to the brain is kind of what society experienced when Galileo realized the earth wasn't at the center of the universe, you know, it takes away mm. activity from their prefrontal cortex and it takes away that ego identification. And it's like, Oh wait, I'm a part of something greater, you know, just like in right. these areas and these other parts of the brain, the midbrain and other areas, instead of just the prefrontal cortex, you know, 
Um, and so, okay. dude, that's really fascinating. Uh, the default mode network is something Paul Samets talks a lot about, you know, and a lot of people, uh, psilocybin researchers. Uh, if you could talk a little bit more about how psilocybin affects the default mode network. And I know we have a mushroom conference coming up in November and we're going to be talking a lot about it. So it would be cool to get a little taste of it now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so, you know, it's funny, the, the connection between the DFL mode network and uh, psychedelics first was originated from a paper with psilocybin. The paper mm -hmm. was in 2012. And um, in that paper and in subsequent ones, you know, the, the kind of story that's there is that the uh, default mode network, you know, becomes less active um, and becomes less connected within itself. And, um, and that moreover, certain connections within the default mode network are associated specifically with ego dissolution. And um, so, as I said before, the what we call the default mode network is actually a set of brain regions. Um, you know, you could you could say let's say twelve or thirteen of them um, in, in some ways of looking at it uh, that are interconnected with each other. And so, when you're characterizing the default mode network, you're looking at the individual connections between fifteen, uh, let's say thirteen regions. So that's thirteen by thirteen connections that are there, right? And, and so, there's a lot of ways to look at that. And uh, studies with psilocybin have shown that that kind of uh, you could think one way to think about it is that the reduction in the connections between a certain area of the brain called the hippocampus and another area of the brain uh, called the posterior cingulate cortex. Um, and, um, or actually it's more so the hippocampus with the rest of the deep mode network in general. So this is a, a, a region, the hippocampus is involved in memory, right? It's involved in our memories of past experiences mainly, um, which is called episodic memory in, in the research. And so um, and you could think about it, these memories of your past experiences are what kind of give you a sense of being a person who exists in time. It's like, I remember my experiences yesterday and 10 years ago. I also kind of remember or project my, my memories into the future. And this is how I think I'm going to be. And so uh, basically in, the psych in psilocybin state, the hippocampus um, becomes less connected to the rest of the brain or the rest of the cortex um, and the rest of the default network as well. And, um, and this relates to ego dissolution, which makes a lot of sense because you're getting, a, you're kind of severing that connection between to, to your, you know, past experiences, which kind of ground your sense of being an individual self. And um, what's also interesting with psilocybin is that the hippocampus also becomes more dynamic in its activity. There's more variance or variability in its activity patterns. And so it's an interesting thing where the default mode network becomes kind of less, less active and uh, disintegrated and the hippocampus becomes more disconnected, but also more crazy in its activity. Um, and so like, you know, we still need to look into more what that means, but it is related to ego dissolution and the sense of having your identity dissolve and you kind of uh, lose all attachment to concepts and experiences um, from your past. So. That's really cool. It sounds like these concepts of dissolution and and disintegration and death, you know, uh, old concepts of old ideas uh, is so fundamental to the psychedelic experience and its therapeutic potential, especially with mental health, you know, um, and the body of research has really grown. And I'd love to know, and I'm sure our listeners would as well, what your typical day looks like and maybe a little bit more about your research. Are you conducting them on animals? Are they human trials that you're working with now? Uh, are they purely data analytics at the moment? Uh, mm -hmm. Please share. For sure. So, so yeah, now it is mainly data analytics for me. Um, mm -hmm. It is extremely hard to collect data with psychedelics. As right. uh, any, I guess any company knows when they're trying to get in that space, it's not easy. A lot of like um, hoops you got to jump through, a lot of regulations and et cetera. 
And in the research world, you know, we have these hardcore ethics boards as well, which we have to get through. Um, and so, uh, Absolutely. so my, my kind of thing right now for, I'm a graduate student, right? So I'm trying to do as much research as I can with data that's available elsewhere. Um, for example, I'm using, you know, uh, data from London with Robin Carhart Harris. I'm using their already collected data, analyzing in new ways because it's accessible, right? And then, you know, after I'm done here, I'm pl I'll probably work with Robin uh, and, and actually wow. conduct my own research with him. Um, so we've chatted about that. Um, and anyway, so like right now, my day today looks like just like I have the data and I'm trying to analyze it in new ways. Also reading a lot of the literature these days, trying to find out kind of new ways to understand psychedelics and the serotonin two way receptor and how to link all these things together such that when I do finish my PhD and then I presumably I'll very likely go work with Robin, I'll have lots of ideas on actual ground level studies to do. Um, but now, yeah, it would like, honestly, if I were to try to do it for graduate school, it will take maybe at least a year or two years just to set it up and then basically yeah. I'm out of here in three years. So, you know, so. Yeah, no, I absolutely can respect that, man. I understand how long uh, and tedious and intensive that process is. Uh, my last publication that we talked about with the lung transplant, uh, repeat lung transplantation was a data uh, analytics sort of project too, looking at old transplant records. And it's intense. Mm. It's very intense, but it definitely, uh, when done properly, can provide really great insight. And I hope that as we move forward, the restrictions will become a lot more lax and we'll be able to do a lot of the research that everyone is so eager to see, you know, uh, in, yeah, this, yeah. in this space. Uh, so since you, since you started your PhD and since your fascination with psychedelics as a, as a teenager, uh, how have you seen the research landscape and the science landscape around these drugs shift and, and where do you hope to see it go in the future? Yeah, totally. I mean, it shifted a lot, right? Even the last yeah. few years with, um, I think Michael Pollan's book was a huge boost uh, to the awareness of this and, and respectability of it, right? Yeah. And now it's like everywhere, you know, these, these companies are like, you know, Compass had their uh, IPO and they had like a lot of people interested and um, a lot of people are, uh, are aware of the space and keeping an eye on it these days, you know? And when I first started, um, uh, let's say uh, undergrad, which wasn't that long ago, I guess it was 2013. Um, it, uh, it was much less, it was more mysterious. It was still mysterious. It was still stigmatized. People weren't really kind of respecting the scientific potential behind them. And, um, and then fast forward, you know, now it's crazy how um, there's so many public, like back in then too, I remember, you know, in second year of undergrad or something, I was like, oh, I want to look at all the psychedelic research in the last 10 years. And literally, it's like a dozen papers or something, you know. <laughs> and now, and now, it's like I'm like taken aback by how much stuff is just out there. And there's these huge psychedelic conferences mm -hmm. with you know um, dozens and dozens of speakers who are doing research and uh, across the world, and it's it's insane, right? And it's only growing bigger and bigger. Yeah, so in think, June or, or July, it was there was 264 clinical trials ongoing yeah. uh regard you know involving the use of investigating the use of psychedelic compounds so huge difference yeah. right yeah 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 it's insane i think 2020 will be the decade of the psychedelics i honestly think yeah you know, they're, they're gonna make huge changes in psychiatry and kind of ne necessitate an overhaul of uh, approaches to uh, the treatment of a lot of disorders you know mm -hmm. and i think uh, i'm super excited for that and I'm, I'm really excited to play a part in in both uh like for me, I see my, my role is like under having a deeper understanding of how they work and what's going right. on in the brain. What are the mechanisms at play? What allow it 
allow psychedelics to create, um, you know, personal transformation or catalyze uh, personal transformation in these uh, deep, these kind of states of consciousness. And um, I think there's so many interesting aspects to the research and it's going to expand and grow. And yeah, I'm like, super stoked. Yeah, I'm really excited about it too. Uh, I know that a lot of people in the industry are, and you can't help but notice there's so many parallels to cannabis, you know, and how cannabis kind of set the regulatory framework. And you could also observe how uh, public perceptions sort of shifted around drugs, psychoactive drugs in general, plant medicine, entheogenic plants. Uh, cannabis has had a big role. Um, at the same mm -hmm. token, psychedelics are very different, you know, because we have a much deeper understanding of the serotonin receptor. Uh, mm -hmm. And a lot of these compounds, at least when isolated, uh, fit the single molecule paradigm better than something like cannabis where we're not having quite the same luck taking just THC or just CBD out of context, you know, mm -hmm. versus taking synthetic psilocybin out of context seems to still be pretty effective. Yeah. Uh, so that's a really interesting contrast, you know, uh, I think mm -hmm. it'd be interesting from a scientific perspective and a pharmacological one, if you could talk about those differences a little more. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think it's called the entourage effect, right? It's like, what are the, all the other compounds right. that come along with it? And uh, I think that's a, it's a thing definitely for natural psychedelics and of course, cannabis, that's a major thing. Right. But like stuff like, um, you can make the argument and people do, there are a lot of purists out there who are saying like, you know, actual yeah. mushrooms, um, it's always better than the synthetic, you know, man-made one. And I think part of that is just like non-scientific, right? It's just like, right. Um, and, and fair, right? Everyone can have their own uh, way of conceiving these uh, substances. Um, but I think there are, you know, people, uh, I'm not like an expert, but like I know there are additional compounds within the psilocybin mushrooms that right, like a mycological, kind of, right, like a mycological entourage effect. Sorry to interrupt. Ex exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and and they they can like synergize with uh, the psilocybin itself, or you know have enzymes that help with absorption, and there can be a variety of things in these things, right? And that that could vary from species of mushroom to species of mushroom. So I think there is a you know, I think there is a difference between taking it that way and, and taking it synthetically. But it's like, is that a, you know, a huge clinically relevant one? Um, and people would often disagree on that as well. And I think, and also with stuff like ayahuasca, for example, which is you're basically, you know, you're taking two different plants, one of which reduces the activity of an enzyme that allows the other to be absorbed and stuff like that, I feel like. Uh, and then also, um, you know, there's also many compounds in that, uh, in addition to DMT and the uh, enzyme yeah, inhibitor, right. monoamine oxidase inhibitor, you know, there's a lot more in that. So I think the extent to which the entourage effect matters for a psychedelic, it'll vary across compounds. And um, especially with psilocybin, it's unclear, you know, just how important that is. Um, and for example, I know uh, there's a lot of underground therapists who combine psilocybin with Syrian rue. And Syrian rue is like a monoamine oxidase inhibitor as well, like a natural one. Um, and, uh, and apparently that enhances the experience and makes it more um, therapeutically powerful. And that's like a lot of people say that, you know. And so there's a lot of cool research to be done on these things. And it's very unclear, but there's definitely something there to look into. 
Yeah, I've been hearing more and more about the use of MAOI with psilocybin. You know, I know some cultures use cacao, which has weak MAOI activity, you know, uh, mm -hmm. or exactly pairing it with Syrian rue. And these combinations are super fascinating, right? Because we're still trying to understand their individual activity. But yeah. then we're combining them with, for example, other functional mushrooms and edible mushrooms like lion's mane, mm -hmm. uh, the stamet stack and and things yeah. of, that, of, of that nature um, can really, it's like a whole really groundbreaking development, you know, as far as nutraceuticals, pharmaceuticals and, and everything goes. But you're right, there are two, there will have more than two, but there's definitely two fundamental schools of thought when it comes to the medicalization of, of psychedelics and the injection of capital uh, into the space. And there are some there are people that fall all over the spectrum, you know, um, mm -hmm. but I guess I'm of the mind that I want this medicine, of course, in a safe, ethical and responsible way to reach as many people as possible. Uh, and, and I believe that's possible through medicalization. I'm curious what your thoughts and opinions are on this as a scientist working in the space. Yeah, totally. I think so too, right? I think um, having it available for mental health professionals to give to clients or, or patients who need it is huge, right? The only, the main concern in my mind is um, you know, for-profit companies driving up the price than more than is necessary, you know? Because there's the idea that, you know, maybe standard treatments with antidepressants, let's say, um, cost, I don't know, $8,000, let's say, a month. I have no clue how much they actually cost, mm -hmm. but let's say they cost that much. And let's say with psilocybin, you can do the therapy for 2000 but you're like, oh, these other uh, standard treatments are 8000 so we're going to charge 6000 you know? And whereas, like, the, the totally ethical, I just want to help people, I don't care about profits, would give it for the 2000, you know what I mean? Right. And so my, my concern is, uh, is making them uh, kind of this, uh, excluding like lower income uh, individuals, for example, and, and it's unclear how much insurance uh, will cover these things, right? Right. So my main concern about mobilization is accessibility um, to, uh, to kind of uh, minorities and underserved populations and people with lower socioeconomic status. So that's a lot of my concern. I think a lot of people share that too. Yeah. Um, and, um, but I think definitely, I think the path forward right now is, is medicalization and that's the best way to have it, uh, accepted in a widespread way and also, um, kind of available. And then also what I hope is that as it becomes more, uh, more people undergo psychedelic therapy, it becomes clear how these can enhance the lives of normal people. Cause they can definitely, you know, uh, there's like, of course, helping people and healing their, their disorders is huge. Um, but that's just like, that's just the beginning. That's getting them to baseline so then they can experience expansion and growth beyond their normal self, you know? And I think that's really exciting too. And it's just, in my mind, it's a, it's a process of getting there. Um, so I think medicalization is the first step, but it's not the last step. Dude, that's great because I think that's the stark contrast um, that's not recognized enough by policymakers between psychedelics and cannabis, you know. So when we're talking about recreation or non-clinical use, we're, we're talking about psycho-spiritual growth. We're talking about the next step in human evolution, you know. Uh, we're not yeah, talking yeah. about getting, getting stoned and watching a movie on your couch. Like, it's, not the, <laughs> it's just not the same thing. It's not what's happening. You know, uh, even totally. if you want to take a bunch of sit in your couch, like things are going to happen to you, you know, that, that yeah, yeah. they're out of the ordinary and out of your ordinary experience. And then I, I, 
conjoining that or doing that in conjunction with uh, psych psychotherapy or with really trained and competent clinicians uh, mm -hmm. can really open up a new world for a lot of people and a paradigm of treatment and recovery that people can get excited about. You know, it's not like if you're already in a bad place, if you are depressed and if you're suffering from drug addiction, you know, um, and it's not like the current treatment paradigm or models are super appealing. It's not like, oh, man, I'm in this position. I can't wait to go to rehab, you know. But what if it was like, oh, there's this really great life waiting for me over there. And it's like, this is unfortunate where I am now. But now that, you know, I can access the tools to really uh, change things for me and go beyond baseline, like you said, you know, beyond just surviving and to thriving. I think that's huge uh, and something that we're all really excited about, you know. Uh, but you bring up some good points about accessibility and inclusion, social equity. And is there a lot of... Uh, um, discussions that are happening in the cannabis space right now as well. Uh, you know, and there was an interesting article in the Washington Post, I believe I just read, that had to, to talk about as these compounds go, uh, become medicalized, how will they become more accessible? But also the fact that the research, the clinical research, isn't representative of the entire world's population. And as a matter of fact, a lot of it's only been done on pretty affluent and mostly white people. You know, uh, yeah, so yeah. like technically as a scientist, you understand that, that like you can't just extrapolate these results and assume that they'll work the same in everybody. So how can we bridge this clinical education uh, and, and research gap? Yeah, yeah, it's super interesting. I think, yeah, kind of what comes up for me for this question is the concept of kind of uh, social cultural uses of psychedelics and ritual settings, because like um a lot of this medicalization, it pitches itself as kind of, uh, you know, culturally neutral, if that's even possible. You know, yeah. it's like here's the scientific, uh, you know, thing. Um, but the thing is, the whole medicalization approach is its own sociocultural context, you know. And yeah. it could be the case for people of different cultures. They want more of a religious, spiritual overtone to it. And that's how they're going to heal because they need that because that's their belief system, you know. And I think um, I think being sensitive to the diverse social cultural context that these compounds have been used and also the demands or requirements or expectations of different cultures uh, is huge for having that ge more general um, greater generalizability because if you're like a you know a secular you know atheist dude uh, in New York um, the type of experience which might be the most palatable and helpful to you is going to be different than you know somebody um, I don't know a Tibetan Buddhist in Nepal or something you know uh, and there's so much uh, variability in people's and what they would want from the experience or how they would conceptualize it, you know. And I feel like uh, a concern there is like if we create this mass marketable thing, it's going to be imposing a particular view on people who might not like it. And I feel like that might reduce efficacy in certain populations. And so this is why I think, you know, the whole anthropological social sciences side is actually very important for psychedelics and important. Uh, with important uh, implications for for therapy and clinical approaches that's um, that's so fundamental man it's so important um because you're right we can't continue to move forward and not pay heed and give credence to where these compounds came from you know and and the fact that the way they were indigenously and traditionally used since time immemorial are kind of they give us a lot of insight to the best practices and how to use them now like for example uh with I iboga and ibogaine treatment 
uh, used for opioid addiction. You know, used for a lot of addictions, but primarily opioid addiction because it alleviates the withdrawals. Um, that's a very long process. You know, one of the things that came up in my mind when we talked about accessibility and cost is like, right, the treatments may not be terribly expensive. Where the cost goes up is the facility and then having a trained therapist to sit there with you for eight hours, right? <laughs> or whatever yeah. the time might be while you're tripping, right? That requires yeah, someone yeah. with the ultimate compassion and, and skill set and training to be able to handle anything and keep you comfortable while you're in that in that state, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's really, it's really fascinating because we, with this context of Iboga, like there is definitely a need for training people, you know, to, to become more, aligned with and in tune with the way that these indigenous cultures were using these medicines because back in the day when they when they gave or the Gabonese and the Buiti tribe would give iboga to someone as part of their coming of age ceremony the whole village would give that person a lot of time and attention over the next few days you know yeah, yeah. Uh, so this is this is the context that these things come from it's not like you know sometimes mm -hmm. they get a little I, I have some skepticism too, where it's like, we can't just take these pharmaceuticalize them, put them in a bottle and give them to people. Maybe, yeah. maybe on a microdose level, but even then, you know, third wave, for example, just came out with this microdosing course and it talks a lot about intention and, and, you know, talking about the, the window of neuroplasticity, people learning languages and expanding businesses and stuff, you know, when they're taking these compounds. So it's not, it's a very different paradigm structure to the way we're used to taking drugs you know mm -hmm, it's, it's uh so i think i think you're right it really speaks to the best practices a lot i don't know if you have a, a, another idea or a comment to share on that no i think it's just yeah it's just so important like uh it's it's yeah i could what this is reminding me of too is like the tendency to still yeah, to see them as just another psychiatric drug right mm -hmm. and i know there was um you probably know the better than me. Uh, there was a company that was trying to intru introduce psychedelics without the experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, do you know who it was? Uh, I think my I think MindMed is trying to do that now with uh, think... 18MC, their okay. iboga derivative. But this is okay. a practice that's trying to be picked up by uh, by a lot of um, uh, drug developers in the space now. You know, it, it being yeah. viewed at and and the argument is like, look, microdosing has all these benefits. And that's supposed to be subperceptual, you know? Uh, so maybe we don't necessarily need the hallucinatory experience. And maybe yeah. a part of me as a scientist is like, am I just associating this really powerful hallucination, which also happens to happen at the same time I'm taking this compound. And then maybe that's not necessarily like uh, an easy or an obvious, you know, um, parallel to draw. Uh, because like there could be other factors, it could be physiological things that are you know happening. So that's the that's that side of it. that's that yeah. train of thinking, you know. But then yeah. again, LSD is only LSD, and it's in micrograms, and it's if it's blowing your world to the point you're not an addict or an alcoholic anymore. You got to question this, this the 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 hallucinations and the spiritual mystical experiences might have a role, you know, in their therapeutic efficacy. Yeah, I personally really do think so. Obviously, there's both things going on. There's the biochemical side, which it increases neurogenesis, increases neuroplasticity, mm -hmm. creates a number of changes in your in your brain dynamics and your chemistry. Um, but I think uh, you know, I personally think the experience is so central, and the studies out there have shown this over and over again that the quality of the acute experience is what predicts clinical outcomes. Right? It's not just like an input output mechanism like like Prozac. You take it, and then afterwards you feel a bit better. 
Um, except for Ozark's not even that fast. It'll take like a month or something. Yeah, right. Um, but, um, yeah, a month but, and maybe you'll feel better. Yeah, exactly. While also having your experience of life changed a lot uh, in right. a negative way. But, um, but I think, you know, with psychedelics, I feel like the people who are trying to develop a way to do it without the experience are missing the point. It's like the point is to have uh, kind of transformative insight into your patterns and change your perspective on life. And that, I, I really believe that, like, you know, uh, maybe it has to be a conscious process, but whether it has to or not, I think it should be a conscious process. You should be conscious of that transition into a new way of perceiving your life, you know? It's like, well, I would want to just, like, take a pill and close my eyes and wake up and I have a new view on life again, even if it's better. <laughs> it's like, I don't want right. that, you know? And, and, and Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's uh... – Man, that's such a that's such a great way you put it, you know, especially when it comes to something like iboga. Like the article I read yesterday was really fascinating because it talks about how iboga is not going to be the answer to the opioid crisis. It's a strong uh, catalyst, you know, but like that's the problem. The problem is we just think we're going to take the next pill or the next uh, the next psychedelic experience on its own is just going to make us uh all better you know we don't have to do any work and it's like no the great yeah. thing about psychedelics is if you meet them halfway then powerful things can happen but if you just take it and expect it to do the work for you then you know i, I see where there's some disappointment then and there's some you know uh, skepticism but but no i think all in all like uh, unlike something like cannabis like uh well in, in a similar vein to cannabis uh, a lot of these have very safe therapeutic indexes and safety profiles of course there's some heart issues with iboga in some patients you know uh, but for the most part something like psilocybin uh is is very safe if you take a very high dose of psilocybin you won't die but you will for sure have a earth-shattering psychedelic experience you know yeah, um, yeah yeah so so yeah no it's really fascinating what what the discussion is going on now about the role the hallucinations may or may not play and and the whole aspect of microdosing i think brings an interesting element to that that discussion um when we are talking about pharmaceuticalization of these compounds i think it's interesting uh you, you can't help but think about things like abuse potential uh and people you know, for example, I think Paul Stamets put niacin in his stack and he talked about this at the psilocybin summit as well. Um, so if you were to try and take too many to achieve a psychedelic experience from this microdosing formulation or nootropic or nutraceutical, you'd have the niacin flush and you'd get very, very uncomfortable. So mm -hmm. there, there are some abuse proof mechanisms that they're trying to put into place, you know, and, and I think that's really fascinating as well. But I think it's interesting to get your insight on the whole idea of these compounds being psychoactive, there being a lot of them being schedule one still and how to reframe the narrative around their like addiction and the fact that these are psychoactive drugs, um, but they're not the same, you know, they're not the same as things like alcohol or cocaine or heroin, uh, not to what they do in the brain, not to what they do to us as a society. So if you could talk a little bit about that, I think it'd be cool. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're, they're so much different, right? Cause like things like, you know, cocaine, alcohol and heroin are just like, I, in my opinion, they're all terrible drugs that have, uh, you know, stronger, um, you know, potential for dependence and potential for adverse effects on your life, you know? Um, and I think psychedelics like psilocybin, LSD, uh, DMT, slash ayahuasca, 
um, are minimally neurotoxic. Like there are like, comparisons drawn to like aspirin or something. Yeah. And, you know, and you could take huge doses of the, these things and not have lasting, uh, you know, physiological damage to your brain or anything like this. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they're not physically, uh, you can't get a physical dependence on them. You can't right. be addicted to them the same way. And, um, and like people, you can, uh, you know, get psychologically dependent on them, but also their tolerance, uh, kind of, um, uh, what's the word precludes your ability to use it very often anyway, because it takes a few days at least. And most people, you know, after having an intense psilocybin experience, don't want to do that again for a bit. Right, you know? right. It's not, it doesn't, this experience itself is not conducive for a constant use. Right. And so I think, um, you know, what's important to recognize is that with these compounds, with psychedelics, it's like set and setting are so important, right? It's like, what's your intention going into it? What's your mindset? How do you feel in your body? You know, what do you expect out of the experience? And then where are you? Who are you with? What are you doing? These really structure it. And that's why, you know, you hear these horror stories of people, you know, going crazy or walking into traffic or doing something stupid. It's like they did it, you know, 99% or 99% sure they did it without the right preparation, without knowing what they're getting themselves into. And they had the kind of experience that, you know, uh, they deserved by not taking it seriously. And I think, you know, science, scientific studies and, of course, thousands of annual reports have said, have showed us that when done with the proper intention and the mindset in the right setting, you can have these very transformative experiences that give you deep insight into your past, into your patterns, into your relationships, into your life vision, and help you uh, provide an opportunity for you to make lasting changes in a positive way. And I think, you know, the fact that they, you can't necessarily do that with heroin or cocaine or alcohol, you know, they, they may have, like alcohol might have its role in social context, whatever, but I mean, you're not going to go into it to have a deep, insightful experience, right? Right. I think, I think psychedelics um, scare people because they make you face all that shit that you've been pushing away that you don't want to face. And people right. aren't ready for that. And that's, and that's fair. But the people who are ready for that, it's a huge opportunity to go deep and have an honest, uh, authentic uh, talk with yourself and figure your stuff out and face those demons, right? I love that. Having an honest conversation with yourself and for the people who are ready to do that, they should have the access and the ability to do so, you know. Um, and you brought up an interesting point about just harm reduction, you know, and education about these compounds. Like they're they're really powerful. At the end of the day, they're amoral, you know, like they're not good or bad, but they're for sure powerful, you know. And so the need for education and using them in a safe setting and uh, and, and using them in a way that, yeah, you know what to expect um, to the to the best of your ability. That's the other thing I want to talk about is you can never really know, you know, uh, unlike cocaine or alcohol or these other drugs, the point of why we take them is because we know what, you know, uh, why people that, that use them do is because they know what to expect. You know what to expect when you have a drink. You know how it's going to make you feel. You don't know for sure how you're going to feel after taking three and a half grams of some really potent mushrooms. You could feel really good. Yeah. You probably will at some parts of the experience. There could definitely be parts of the experience that are mortifying and terrifying. And that's the, and that's just part of the unpredictability. Of yeah. These Sometimes compounds. that's what you need. Right. Right. And that's the thing It's stepping into the unknown. That's what people are afraid of. You know, mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing unknown about having a drink or, well, maybe for some people, there's really bad consequences, you know, that are, that are unknown. But even then, they kind of know that this is probably what's going to happen, you know. Uh, and that's the really yeah. interesting d d divide between psychedelic drugs and, and other other drugs, you know, is that it's not predictable. It's not consistent. And, and that's good. That's, I think, good. It's important for us to lean into fear a little bit, you know, and lean into the unknown because 
if nothing changes and nothing changes, right? So like, that's what these are. They're just really powerful inducers of catalysts of change. I think that's mm-hmm. really fascinating. Uh, hopefully, I think I want to talk a little bit about the work you're doing as a psychedelic scientist. I think it's totally in alignment, you know, with bringing this information out of, you know, the the ivory tower of academia, you know, that, that we're both very familiar with and, and bringing it to um, the masses, you know, in a way that's accessible and, and also entertaining, but educational and empowering. So please share a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's it's uh, so the it's called the psychedelic scientist. It's a YouTube uh-huh. channel I started uh, back in June, and with the intention of you know this is a way I could share this world of psychedelic research in, in a way to the general public that's not like some kind of sensationalist news reporting and you know trying to hype up the findings or it's really being super superficial to the extent that you're not even capturing what the studies actually said. And so I started this thing. Um, it's a way for me to share this world and also a way for me to kind of um, share my kind of have a record or a log of my own process of learning these things and going through the science and how the research develops over time. And um, I think a lot of people are interested in this stuff, obviously, and want to know more and are limited in their ability to go and get it because they can, you know, a lot of people just can't go and read the, the you know, the primary sources, the actual research articles. And, um, and, and, I made it into video form because I feel like uh, people have very little attention spans these days and it's hard getting people to read stuff. Um, and so like ha- having some kind of engaging format of uh, conveying it, I thought would be the most effective way. And so I'm just like continuing to push forward with that and uh, just finding um, different interesting ways to present the science and um, show people the limitations of it as well as showing the cool stuff that we're finding. And yeah, and it's been exciting so far, and I'm planning to continue that for the foreseeable future. Uh, Dude, that's yeah, that's really awesome. Uh, I definitely am in alignment with all of that, with the work we're doing at Microdose and creating psychedelic science media, basically, you know, uh, mm-hmm. for for the general education of everybody, so people can get plugged in and tapped in, tuned in, turned on to all of the exciting work that's happening in this space, you know. Uh, so. Mm-hmm. I think it's been a really great conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show. If you could share your handles and your you know, where people can find out about the psychedelic scientists and you, I think that'd be really helpful for our listeners. For sure. Thank you. And yeah, first of yeah, awesome to be here. I really enjoyed this. And um, so like you can find me on Twitter mm-hmm. at mgirn Nero. So M-G-I-R-N-N-E-U-R-O. Um, and then also on Instagram and uh, YouTube. It's just on Instagram, it's at uh, the psychedelic scientist. YouTube is just, just Google the psychedelic scientist or YouTube search the psychedelic scientist. You can go find yeah. me. Uh, so those are the main two ways. And if you ever want to contact me, you could just DM me on Twitter or uh, you could find my email pretty easy on the internet too, I think. so. Awesome, dude. I think there are a lot more exciting conversations to be had between us. I look forward to having you on the show again next time, you know. Yeah. Uh, and are there any uh, last minute uh, thoughts that you had? I'd love to give you the last word. Yeah, for sure. Hmm, let me think. Is there anything I want to say? Um, yeah, I think I think just in general, just keep an eye out for all the cool stuff that's coming, and uh, and realize that you know these are truly mysterious and powerful compounds that have a lot of potential, but we really don't know that much about them. Uh, and, and there's like so much more research that needs to be done in various fields, like not just neuroscience, psychology, and psychiatry, but also anthropology, sociology, and kind of fully fleshing out. 
uh, these fascinating compounds, which have this huge sensitivity to, um, you know, what's already going on because they're amplifiers. Right. So yeah. I think there's just so much interesting stuff to, to come and um, always just be cognizant of their huge potential and always come at them with respect and recognize um, that they can be used to help people. Um, and they're extremely effective at helping facilitate a process comes down to intention and people's ability to work through their, their deepest wounds and their darkest, like, you know, demons. And, um, and yeah, that's it. Like, it's like super exciting. Yeah, that's a great message. Well, thank you so much, Manish. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, everybody. This has been the third episode of the sci-fi podcast. Uh, we were here with the psychedelic scientist, Manish Gurn, and, uh, thank you so much. And we look forward to chatting with you next Bye. time. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining the Sci-Fi Series, brought to you by Microdose and The Conscious Fund. Visit our website at www.microdose.buzz.